but at the price of replacing freedom by monarchy and establishing the third period of our course, the great age of the immense majesty of the Roman Empire, the first and second centuries A.D., in which the ordinary citizen achieved a level of affluence not reached again until the 20th century, and when the cultural, political, architectural, intellectual currents for the next 1,500 years of European history were laid, the age that saw the emergence of Christianity. So these three periods will be the focal point of our course. And in the last of these periods, the second century AD, biography reached its apex in the classical world. This was the age in which both Plutarch and Suetonius lived. Plutarch would set the form of biography all through the Middle Ages in Byzantium. He would be rediscovered in Western Europe during the, middle, uh, during the late Middle Ages and flourish in the Renaissance. His translation into English would shape some of the greatest plays of, of uh, Shakespeare. Julius Caesar, Anthony and Cleopatra, Coriolanus. And Plutarch would work upon the minds of figures like Rousseau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Harry Truman. That most practical of American presidents would say that whenever he had a real problem, he would sit down with old Plutarch, and he would find more wisdom in Plutarch than in all of his advisors together. Suetonius, written in Latin, Plutarch wrote in Greek, Suetonius would live all through the Western Middle Ages, when in the distant court of Charlemagne at Aachen, Einhard the monk got ready to write a biography of a man who rivaled in his achievements Julius Caesar, Charlemagne. He turned to Suetonius' lies for his inspiration. So these figures themselves, our biographers, our sources, are themselves important elements in history. Now, when we look at these three great events in world history, the rise of Rome to world power, well, that was the result of the war with Hannibal. The war with Hannibal so shook the Roman people that they literally swore never again to be in such danger. And so out of this war, studied in the lives that will appear before us, Rome would emerge as the only superpower in the world by the year 167 B.C. And then at the height of its power, we shall see from 133 down to 44 B.C., how the Romans came into political gridlock, tore themselves apart with civil war, and finally gave up that liberty that had made them so great, only to accept an even greater charge of empire from the Caesars. So let us begin our course back in the year 218 B.C., and I'd ask you to put aside wherever we are at the moment and shift your minds back to a March day in 218. And we are in the Forum of Rome. It is already the worthy political center of the capital of Italy. For Rome, by 218 B.C., is the most important power in Italy. It has expanded its power to Sicily. But it is still not absolutely dominant even in the Western Mediterranean world. It continues to be threatened by the mighty power of Carthage, only a day's sail from Sicily in what we would call Tunisia today. And we are in the Forum amidst its mighty public buildings, its Senate House, the assembly where the Roman people meet, and with statues all up and down the Forum of great Romans who have come before. 
and I would like to look at the first of our famous Romans, Publius Cornelius Scipio. He is the consul of that year, 218 B.C., and he embodies for us the qualities of the Roman aristocrat. For Rome is a free republic, but it is guided by aristocratic families who generation after generation serve the republic, serve it for no pay, serve it only out of a sense of public duty and out of the desire for glory and honor. But like most of the best aristocrats of his day, Publius Cornelius Scipio wants honor and glory only for the sake of making his country great. And he is there in the forum with his son, Publius Cornelius Scipio, a boy of about 18 years of age. Now let's stop just for a moment and think about Roman names.